Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Samuel Totten. As many of the regular listeners to the show already know, Sam is one of the giants in the field of genocide studies. His publications are too numerous to mention here, but any list would have to start with one of the standard textbooks in the field called Centuries of Genocide. In addition to being a scholar, Sam is active in human rights work as well. The book we're going to use here as a starting point comes at the intersection of both of these interests. Genocide by Attrition, The Nuba Mountains of Sudan, published by Transaction Publishers, is a concise, powerful work that examines the government of Sudan's offensives against the Nuba people in the last decades of the 20th century and the first years of the 21st. It combines historical analysis with moving interviews and a discussion of contemporary affairs in the Sudan. This book, unlike many of we've discussed on the show, differs because the violence it discusses is still ongoing. Because of that, we're also going to discuss recent events in the Sudan and the response of both genocide scholars and the American government to that violence. For those listeners interested in pursuing this topic, I'd recommend looking at the most recent issue of Genocide Studies International. This issue includes several articles addressing the NUBA and recent events in the Sudan, and it also lays out a fiery critique of genocide studies as being too academic, one that I found quite thought-provoking. That's a busy agenda, so perhaps we should get to it. So with that, Sam, welcome, and thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you very much. I uh, look forward to speaking with you today. So... As I was uh, uh, doing the research to suggest this interview to you, I, I Googled you, as most people do now, to find your email address. And I have to confess, I was somewhat shocked to find out that you were housed at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville in the education department. Maybe we can start by asking you to say something about how you got there. <laughs> uh, that's a question that I often get. I... Uh... It ended up being a very strange place for me to be. Uh, There's no doubt about that, especially as I became more immersed in the field of genocide studies. But I went to graduate school at Columbia University and got a doctorate in uh, curriculum theory and ultimately got a job at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville uh, in the department, in the College of Education, uh, teaching courses and doing research on curriculum theory. But throughout uh, my, uh, well, I should say for years and years, going back to the late 1970s, I'd been involved in human rights work. In fact, I uh, worked for Amnesty International in Australia between 1976 and 78 and continued my work over the years in human rights. So when I got to the University of Arkansas, I also continued writing about human rights issues. And the actually the, uh, the change 
over to a focus almost exclusively on genocide took place probably about seven years after I first uh, accepted the job in 1988 at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And that was a result of just becoming more immersed in conducting research uh, and uh, working with others on chapters and books or working with them on different projects related to genocide. And it became very uncomfortable being in the Department uh, of Curriculum Instruction in the College of Education because a lot of people did see it as, uh, and they told me this up front, they they saw it as uh, really not having anything to do with education, which I disputed, but uh, for a good number of years, there was a real battle uh, between myself and the dean and the uh, department chair because I was doing so much publishing in the field of genocide studies. Uh, I guess the only saving grace as far as uh, the department was concerned is is I was also doing research on uh, in the field of education at the same time. Um, so... What what made you originally interested in human rights? Well, it goes back to actually I had graduated uh, in 1972 as an English major, and uh, I decided to move to San Francisco uh, and with the hope of uh, writing and publishing a novel. And so I ended up living uh, actually in a uh, in just on the periphery of Chinatown in this old uh, hotel. It was only $15 a week, if you can believe that. <laughs> and uh, I would write during the day. I, I knew nobody in San Francisco. I really didn't become friends with anybody in San Francisco, so I would write all day. But then in the evening, I would go to what is now a famous bookstore, City Lights Bookstore, owned by mm-hmm. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, one of the uh, B poets. And every evening, I would go downstairs to this table and sit down and I would bring a number of books there uh, that I'd been reading and I would continue reading. Well, one evening I came across, uh, there was a journal uh, on top of this table and splayed across the front of the cover was something to the uh, extent of, uh, I think it said, uh, torture in Chile. And it was an article by Rose Styron, a very well-known human rights uh, activist. Her husband was uh, the famous novelist, uh, William Styron. And I read that, and I was flabbergasted. Uh, Flabbergasted for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, I probably from uh, sixth grade forward, I always read the newspaper, and I thought I had read it pretty thoroughly, and uh, at that time it was the Los Angeles Times, but I'd never heard uh, how pervasive torture was uh, across the globe. And so I was absolutely astonished that when she talked about uh, how ubiquitous it was, that I was ignorant of this fact. And it also disturbed me because I had started out as a history major but changed over to English, but I'd never heard of uh, about contemporary torture either in any of these courses. And so uh, it really uh, not only intrigued me, but, but it was rather devastating reading about uh, these acts of torture against these dissidents. And uh, that really was the impetus of all of my work in uh, the field of human rights and ultimately genocide studies. 
I want to get to the book in just a second here, but one last kind of introductory question, and, and, and that is to say, when you started writing in, in, in the field of genocide studies, the, the field was really just emerging. And I'm wondering if you could, did you, when you started writing, did you have a sense that this even was a field and where that field should go? Or did this kind of emerge organically as you tackled individual projects? Yeah, that's a great question. No, at the time, it certainly was not a field. Uh, and uh, I think there were individuals within uh, this discipline, if you want to call it a discipline even, um, who were hoping that it would become a field of uh, studies. But uh, it was a very, very small group of individuals. In fact, it was quite interesting because uh, if you were in this field and uh, in publishing on a regular basis, you you slowly but surely uh, became uh, not only conversant with uh, most of the people in the field, if not all of them, but, uh, you know, on a first-name basis, you got to know them fairly well. And the way that I ultimately uh, began writing was I I had met a fellow named Israel Sharney, who was one of the early pioneers in the field. And at that time, when I met him, I was an English teacher at the Walworth Barber American International School in Israel, and I just happened to have his student, uh, his uh, son, in class. And uh, we became fast friends. That is Israel Sharney, uh, the father of my students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started attending Amnesty International meetings together and, and talking about uh, genocide. He was at that time working on his first book on genocide. And uh, so I ended up writing uh, three chapters for another one of his books. And that was really the b- beginning of my uh, scholarly efforts in the field. But, yeah, at that time, uh, it was just individuals, really, who were interested in the, uh, in the um, area of genocide and uh, really just contacted one another. I mean, at the time, we didn't have Internet, so we were writing letters back and forth. <laughs> and, and that's the way we communicated and got to know one another. And, but slowly but surely... In the early 90s, uh, you know, an organization, the International Association of Genocide Scholars, was started, and that was really the impetus for beginning, uh, I think, a, a field of studies, and it really exploded in the late 1990s. But up until that time, no, uh, we, we were just working away and uh, hoping to draw attention to, to the issue. So how did the Sudan start to figure in your research? Yes, well, uh, in see, it was the summer of 2004. I was asked to join a uh, a project called the Atrocities Documentation Project. It was a uh, a project that was sponsored by USAID and uh, the U.S. State Department, and it basically. It was a team of what they called investigators that was sent to the uh, eastern Chad in the refugee camps along the Chad-Darfur border. And these so-called investigators uh, interviewed refugees from Darfur who had been expelled from their villages and homes as a result of the attacks by the government of Sudan and the Jean Jouid. And so at that time, uh, 2004, uh, I 
you know, I, I was uh, in a place called Goes Beta, and we, we interviewed approximately, I had a team member. Uh, we all had team members. Uh, and we, we interviewed approximately, I think it was 56 individuals. In total, we, the entire team interviewed, I believe it was 1,137 individuals. And all of that data went to back to the State Department. Ultimately, uh, Colin Powell used that data to come to the decision that uh, Sudan had perpetrated genocide against the people mm-hmm. of Darfur and probably was still doing so. That then uh, was the impetus for me to go back on my own to uh, the refugee camps to continue uh, conducting research into what was happening in Darfur, interviewing individuals in different refugee camps. And uh, it was, and throughout that time, I was trying to get into Darfur in Sudan. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I could not get a visa from the government of Sudan. They simply refused to give me one. And my sense was it was because I had been part of this uh, atrocities documentation project, and I I had published about the results of uh, this project. Ultimately, I several years later, I was on a Fulbright in in uh, Rwanda, and I was coming back to the United States to give a talk at the University of Chicago, and I uh, just inadvertently bumped into this fellow in uh, Nairobi who was getting on the plane who had been working in Sudan. We started talking. Long story short, he told me how I could get into Sudan without a visa. <laughs> and from there, uh, I began going into the Nuba Mountains. Uh, and I would go in on a NGO plane, uh, non-governmental organization plane, and we would land on a field. Uh, it wasn't a an airport. Uh, there was no uh, no air controllers or anything like that. We would simply get off this plane uh, and walk away and walk into the village. So nobody in Sudan, the Sudanese government, knew that I was there, so it was not a problem. More recently, uh, and we can talk about this, uh, the, those flights are no longer flying into mm-hmm. uh, Sudan because there's a no-fly zone. So now I have to cross the border illegally uh, from South Sudan into, uh, into Sudan into, and then head up into the Nuba Mountains. You seem to have a habit, actually, of bumping into people on planes. <laughs> that's how you met your interpreter, right? Yeah, that's an incredible story. Uh, indeed. Uh, I was, uh, this first time that I was heading to the, uh, the Nuba Mountains, I went to uh, Wilson Field in Nairobi early in the morning and uh, got there to hop on this uh, NGO flight. And I'd say there are probably on this flight, there may be eight or nine people. And uh, we were standing around after we had loaded this uh, plane. The plane was basically a cargo plane uh, that had seats in it. So we all pitched in, loaded the plane. And so I was standing there by myself, and this fellow, uh, at the time, he's changed his name since. His name was Ramadan. He now refers to himself as Alexander. But uh, Ramadan was standing there, and we started talking, and uh, he was a very nice fellow, and we ended up sitting on the uh, plane together. 
long story short, he had not been uh, home to see his parents in 10 years because he left when he was uh, 11 years old uh, because he wanted to study. Uh, he wanted to earn his uh, high school diploma, and uh, most of the schools had been shut down in the Nuba Mountains because of the crisis uh, back in the 1990s. So he hadn't seen his family for 10 years. He was going back for the first time, and hmm. Uh, basically, I said, I told him what I was doing, and I said, you know, your English is really impressive, and would you be interested in serving as an interpreter, and went from there. Hmm. Well, some of our some of our listeners will know the Sudan well, but many will not. So can, can we start briefly by having you describe where the Sudan is, who the Nuba people are, and, and, and their situation within the Sudan, say, before the, this, this conflict started? Sure, yeah. Um, well, Sudan happens to be the largest uh, country in Africa. It's, it's huge. Um, and it's there, it borders a number of different countries. Uh, it's south of Egypt, uh, and the rest of the countries that it borders are, for example, Chad, uh, the Central African Republic, the uh, DRC, that is the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda, small piece of uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. So, as one can imagine, I mean, it, it really takes up a huge hmm. piece of property. And just mentioning those different uh, areas, uh, Chad, Central African Republic, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, if people have a sense of what's happening there, Ethiopia and Eritrea, I mean, this is an area that is rife with conflict. And so there's a lot of conflict along the borders, but within... Uh, but within Sudan, there's been great conflict as well, and not just uh, recently, but uh, pretty much since its uh, birth as a nation in 1956. Uh, as far as the Nuba Mountains, it is uh, located in the state called South Cordovan. And uh, South Cordovan today borders uh, the new nation of the Republic of South Sudan. So it's in the south of Sudan, uh, that is the state of uh, South Cordovan, and the Nuba Mountains are pretty much in the heart or the middle of uh, uh, South Cordovan. And it's a, a relatively small area, but a fascinating area. I mean, there are about 52 uh, tribal groups in the area, um, and uh, it's c comprised of uh, very, very small villages. Uh, basically, uh, it's a, a dusty area, though it uh, dusty area uh, which receives a lot of rain during the rainy season, uh, incredible amounts of rain. In fact, hmm. the rainy season is from roughly uh, April to November. And it rains so much that you can, you really cannot get around very well, if at all, at least, uh, in vehicles at that time, because everything becomes very swampy. But, uh, the Nuba Mountains, part of it is also considered breadbasket of, uh, Sudan. So they do grow a, uh, they have, uh, they grow a lot of, uh, produce. Uh, and that was another part of the problem back in the 90s, is that the government of Sudan wanted to go in and take over a lot of the land, basically mm -hmm. to uh, establish what they referred to as uh, mechanized farms, gigantic farms, uh, which ended up taking away land from uh, the local farmers. 
so it's very very hilly, and then the mountains are uh, very steep, and within the mountains there are a lot of caves. Uh, nobody lives in the mountains except for when they flee up there uh, during these attacks that we'll be talking about. How then, so, so the Sudan emerges out of the colonial period. How does the conflict in the Sudan begin, and how do the people in the Nuba fit into the broader constellation of forces there? Yeah, well, there were two, um, uh, what they refer to as uh, civil wars, and uh, the Nuba Mountains uh, factored into the second civil war, which uh, was fought between uh, roughly 1983 and 2005. Uh, The South, and when I talk about the South, I'm talking about uh, uh, states basically uh, around South Cordovan, um, there was there were at the time Northern Cordovan, uh, and in in areas uh, not not Darfur at this time, but uh, all the way down to where the current state of the Republic of South Sudan is, basically had asked for, insisted on, demanded uh, their own, uh, their own, they demanded what they considered were their basic human rights. Uh, mm-hmm. They also complained about the fact that they felt disenfranchised. Uh, disenfranchised politically because they felt that they did not have adequate representation in uh, the parliament. Uh, disenfranchised economically because uh, there really was nothing put into the South in regard to an infrastructure that would help help the people uh, with their livelihoods. Uh, Disenfranchised in uh, uh, various ways vis-a-vis their uh, infrastructure, meaning in this area, just as in Darfur, for that matter, I mean, there are no roads to speak of. I mean, every every road that I travel on when I'm in the Nuba Mountains is mm-hmm. dirt, uh, it's uh, rutted, uh, it's uh, bumpy, dusty, uh, no bridges, and there are a lot of rivers that you have to cross. Uh, they're called wadis there, and when they're filled with water, it's almost impossible to get across at times because the uh, rain is so torrential. Uh, very few hospitals and very few schools, and so basically they were demanding uh, these uh, these basic rights, and the government of Sudan pretty much ignored them. And there was a revolt called the Boer Revolt early on, led by a fellow named John Garang, who ultimately became the leader of the Sudanese People's Liberation Movement Army, uh, mm-hmm. which is generally referred to as the SPLM slash A. And that Boer Revolt ignited the Second Civil War. And this war, this second civil war went on for 20 years. Hmm. And, uh, astoundingly, uh, two million people were killed during the course of this war. And the, slowly but surely, the people in the Nuba Mountains started to be drawn in uh, to this war. Initially, they were not a part of it. But, uh, what generally happened is that 
first of all, uh, there were nomadic groups that uh, were close to the government of Sudan who entered the uh, Nuba Mountains and started uh, trying to use the land of the sedentary people, uh, and it, which is very similar to what happened in Darfur, and that caused a lot of uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the SPLM started recruiting the uh, people in the Nuba Mountains, and, and the fighting went north. Well, it went north for the people in the south, and obviously the north came down into the Nuba Mountains as well, and uh, that was in the late 1980s, so it was a good while um, after the war started that the Nuba really started to become part and parcel of this uh, second civil war. And they were drawn into this, and the more they were drawn into it, uh, the greater focus there was by the government of Sudan on the Nuba Mountains. And a lot of uh, men were leaving their families, and they what they did is they ended up going south because they would be trained by the SPLM, and then they would come back up to the Nuba Mountains and fight from uh, the Nuba Mountains area. Because of that, the government of Sudan uh, would come in and not only go after the rebels, and again, this is a parallel with Darfur, would not only go after the rebels, but basically what they did was they would carry out, a, they carried out a, uh, a scorched earth policy in which they went after virtually everybody and anybody in the Nuba Mountains, meaning that they would go in and bomb uh, villages, They uh, ground troops would go in and attack villages, um, killing people, chasing people away, uh, people went up into the mountains, uh, seeking sanctuary. Uh, at one and the same time, this is this is what this is the one thing that's radically different from what's happening today is that the government of Sudan at at that time, and I'm talking now uh, the early 1990s, uh, established what they referred to as peace camps, which was a euphemism basically for concentration camps, mm-hmm. and they would they would pull the people, capture capture uh, families, uh, villages, and force them into these camps. Um, and since, you know, most of the men were away fighting, these camps were heavily populated by women and the elderly. Uh, oftentimes the children were taken away from their families and placed in fundamentalist Islamic schools. And basically, uh, at least this is the way the Nuba Mountains people would perceive it or did perceive it, brainwashed into, you know, a new way of thinking. Because I should note that in the Nuba Mountains, uh, there are people who are uh, Muslim, there are people who are Christians, and there are people who are animist. Uh, and and that's, that's different from Darfur, because in Darfur, everybody was basically Muslim. So uh, you had these groups, their churches and their mosques were being attacked and burned down in the Nuba Mountains. Um, and so... You know, slowly but surely, these people would flee up into the mountains and and then start living up in the mountains. Uh, and and that's when this whole situation became protracted because the people in the mountains uh, then did not have ready access to their fields, their produce, um, or their food stores, uh, meaning 
the grain, you know, that they uh, had in, they keep them in gigantic jars. Uh, I mean, when I say gigantic, I'm talking four, five, six feet high and <laughs> three, four feet wide. And they're often, they often take up a room uh, hmm. unto themselves. And so they didn't have access to, the, access to that. So they were in the mountains. You there? Yes. Oh, well, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, um, so that was basically the situation. Now, what, what was your last question? I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I got off on a tangent there. No, you're good. Let, let me pursue that then and follow on to that. So, so the, the, the second civil war has emerged that the, the Nuba are being targeted as part of the civil war. You, you describe this as, as genocide by attrition. Why, why do you think that's the best label? Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting situation. Um, actually, uh, the first person to use that phrase was a fellow named Alex DeWall, who uh, was living in the Nuba Mountains at the time. He was a, a doctoral candidate at Oxford University. And he had been conducting his... Uh, uh, doctoral work, research in the Nuba Mountains, and he saw this situation unfolding, and basically what he asserted is this, is that uh, the, uh, the government of Sudan came in, and they would either bomb the farms, burn the farms down, or take over the land and and make it part and parcel of these gigantic mechanized farms. And then they would either steal the grain that was in the uh, granary or they would um, burn, you know, destroy that by burning it. Mm-hmm. So they were basically depriving the people of their food source. Now, the people then, as I said, fled up into the mountains a lot of these people were fearful of coming back down uh, to the village because they knew that uh, the government of Sudan troops were there, and so they obviously feared being killed. So they didn't dare go back and try to harvest their crops, if they even existed any longer, um, or to go and uh, try to retrieve uh, the grain that had already been uh, processed. Uh, but over and above that, once these people were in the Nuba Mountains, I, I mean, and when I say the Nuba Mountains, I'm talking the actual mountains, mm-hmm. uh, they were without food, as I mentioned. And so what they did is they initially uh, existed on the little food that they brought up with them, and then they had to start carving out uh, ways to either grow little patches of food, but the problem is, is there's not much soil at all in these mountains. Uh, and so then a lot of people started traveling by foot for days and days and days at a time to, to get food, bring it back to their family members. But by the time they got back within a day or two, they would have to leave again, uh, for two or three days, you know, to come back with more food. And the situation kept getting more and more desperate. And ultimately, 
these people resorted to eating uh, anything and everything they could. Uh, they started digging up roots and uh, boiling those and then uh, mashing them and drying them out and uh, mashing them again and then putting them in with any uh, bit of sorghum they might have, which is a traditional food there. Uh, they started pulling leaves off of trees. They would eat any and all fruit, whether it was poisonous or not. The amazing thing was they did eat, end up eating a lot of poisonous roots uh, and, uh, and fruits and leaves, and they knew that they were poisonous. But what they did is, and this is uh, spelled out time and again in these interviews in this book, is knowing that these uh, leaves and roots, uh, plants, uh, were uh, poisonous, they would boil them uh, once, and then they would uh, strain the water, uh, boil, boil the, uh, you know, the plants again, uh, strain the water, boil it again. So they almost always did it three times, and then they would let it dry for a couple of days. Then they would beat it into, not a powder, but these granules, uh, and then they would use that to put in with any other food they had. Uh, and basically what it did was to fill their stomachs. That's almost the only reason mm-hmm. they ate this stuff. Now, the sad thing is, is that a lot of people uh, died as a result of, one, a lack of food, but also, uh, particularly elderly and infants, uh, their systems could not take this uh, this food that was poisonous. And even though they had tried to bleach out the poison, it did have an ill impact on a lot of the elderly and babies, and they died uh, terrible deaths as a result of this. Now, the other part of the equation here is that the government of Sudan knew that this was happening, knew that these people were virtually starving in the mountains and didn't do anything about it, but not only did not do anything about it, they literally uh, and they literally prevented any humanitarian aid from coming in uh, to provide uh, food uh, for these individuals who were who were suffering uh, severe malnutrition and starvation. And so Alex DeWall it used a uh, a term, a concept that was actually originally coined by a woman named Helen Fine, who's a very noted uh, scholar mm-hmm. of genocide mm-hmm. studies, and uh, he used her concept to describe what was happening in uh, the Nuba Mountains at that time. So it was genocide by attrition, basically denying them food, denying them humanitarian aid, and uh, while fully cognizant of the fact that the people were starving and uh, purposely denying them this aid. You, you mentioned the interviews you've done, and this is a big part of the book. How, how did you end up select or finding interview subjects? Yeah, well, that, it, it was an interesting situation because I mentioned meeting this fellow in Nairobi on the plane. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I met him, which was uh, about 2009, uh, by this time, I had returned to Chad uh, three times. And so I had been interviewing, as I mentioned, people in uh, the refugee camps along the Chad-Darfur border. I was also interviewing people from Darfur who were residing um, uh, in Jemina, the capital of Chad. And as I mentioned, I really wanted to get into Darfur to interview the people in Darfur. Well, 
when I spoke to this fellow that evening as we were flying from Nairobi to Amsterdam, uh, I said, you know, I've really been trying to get into, uh, not the Nuba Mountains, but into Darfur. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I can't help you with Darfur, but I can get you into Sudan, and, um, you know, I can get you up to the Nuba Mountains. And he said, what you'll be particularly interested in is this. He said, there is an IDP camp, uh, an internally displaced persons mm-hmm. camp, mm-hmm. outside of uh, a main town in the Nuba Mountains called Kauda. And these people were from Darfur. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, that, I said, that would be incredible to be able to, uh, interview them. And, uh, so initially I flew, uh, to Kauda, um, to seek interviews with these IDPs from Darfur. And so, in fact, I did go out there and, uh, I interviewed a lot of the people from Darfur in this, uh, small IDP camp. But while I was doing this, I was residing, um, in the evenings in a compound, uh, of an NGO in Kauda and, uh, you know, as you meet people, you start asking about, well, you know, or they'll start telling you about the history of the place. And uh, I kept hearing over and over again these stories about what had transpired in the Nuba Mountains back in the 1990s. Now, I had uh, some, I had a, uh, some information and an inkling of what happened, but not, m- not much depth. But the more stories I heard, the more intrigued I became, and I knew that there had been little written on this. I, I, I was familiar with something that had come out uh, by Alex DeWall and a group that he worked with in England called African Rights. Uh, but I thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity while I'm here, I can interview people in regard to what transpired in the Nuba Mountains in the 1990s. So what I did then is I began to split my time between the IDP camp. Hmm. I would go out there every morning, but then in the afternoon and early evenings, I would interview people back in Kauda about what transpired in the Nuba Mountains. And I just got the word out that I was interested in meeting people who had lived in uh, the Nuba Mountains uh, between, uh, you know, late 1980s and and, uh, the late 1990s uh, who had experienced either uh, the shelling or the the attacks or people who had been in peace camps or people who had uh, suffered, you know, the uh, because of... uh, extreme hunger, word got out and people started approaching me and also people started saying, well, you know, you really need to speak to so-and-so. And And Hmm. so I would simply go out and I would ask people if they would be interviewed or not. And I told them, of course, that as I always do, uh, they're not compelled to do it. If they say no, that's fine. Um, I told them what I was doing. I told them I was interested in what had transpired at the time. Uh, And at that time, I said I was interested in writing this up as a research article because there had been so little written about it uh, as far as I uh, could ascertain. And so I had really at the time no thought about working on a book because I was already working on another massive book on, um, <laughs> on Darfur. And, but 
the longer and the more the more people I interviewed, the more immersed I became into uh, the situation in the Nuba Mountains. And then I began meeting uh, individuals who had fought as soldiers with the SPLM, and uh, their stories then were radically different from the civilians. And I thought, you know, I sh- since there's not that much out there about this, it, it would behoove me to come back here and uh, continue this research. So I, I returned two more times uh, to the Nuba Mountains on this NGO plane, and then I've been back a, a number of times crossing over the border. So, uh, yeah, I just decided, I think I, you know, I, I've got access. Very few people have access to this region. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, let's move forward with this project. And they're really startling interviews and 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 you've already mentioned one of one of the kind of themes that comes through repeatedly in uh, the the sheer amount of space devoted to hunger and the detail with which they recount the kind of ways in which they tried to adapt to this hunger and and to to use resources that we wouldn't ordinarily consider food what what are some of the other themes that come through is there, is there a kind of a uniform set of experiences or yeah, I there well yeah, certainly one one is hunger. Um mm-hmm. but uh another one that uh I thought was particularly interesting was the impact on the children. Mm. Uh you know, oftentimes you'll read in in uh about various genocides, uh you know, the, the way the children suffered. Uh and and certainly uh some of these interviews speak to that but they also speak to uh how some of these young people were involved in um for example carrying uh uh carrying food carrying uh not weapons but uh, but ammunition miles and miles and miles uh hmm. from South Sudan up into the Nuba mountains uh they talk about uh uh, being on their own as their parents went to seek food. Uh, they talked about uh, living in this area where they were constantly being attacked by the uh, by the government of Sudan, the government of Sudan, and what that meant on a daily basis to them. I mean, uh, some of them talk about, there was one young woman who talked about uh, walking from uh, this uh, village of Kauda to another village uh, called Hebon. And if you drive between Kauda and Hebon, it takes maybe a half an hour over, you know, again, hmm. bumpy, bumpy dirt roads. Um, but it was, it's a good walk from where they were walking from. Um, but, but they talk as they're, they talk about walking along the way and, and all of a sudden there's an attack. Um, and they all scatter and, uh, they're all very frightened because they're young and they don't know what happened to their friends. And then they try to get back home. Uh, so, so a lot of the interviews are, of. Uh, of individuals who were young at the time. I mean, another uh, man, and uh, and uh, and this becomes kind of a theme as well, is is how the families ultimately, uh, meaning the Nuba Mountains uh, people, the Nuba Mountains, their families were. Uh, 
destroyed in various ways. And mm-hmm. for example, I mean, a lot of the fathers would leave and never come back, and uh, families would assume that the uh, fathers had probably been killed in battle, and yet they had not been notified, uh, which mm-hmm. was not unusual. Uh, another young man I'll never forget uh, told me that his mother was not right in the head. I mean, basically, she was suffering still from, um, uh, you know, the shock of of that period of time and probably, uh, uh, you know, had a very difficult time getting through the day-to-day. And he said that he basically feels that... He's her son. He's her husband, um, wow. in the sense that he has to take care of everything yep. uh, and to make sure that she's okay, make sure that the siblings are okay. And in that regard, another theme is is lost childhoods because uh, what they saw and what they experienced and what they ended up doing in these fragmented families had a dramatic impact on them and continues through this day. Hmm. I'm curious, um, briefly, because I want to move on in, in a moment, but I'm struck by the fact that you said you, you did these interviews all day. What kind of emotional experience was that for you? Yeah, well, um, it, it, it's interesting because from 2004, it, well, the first interviews that I conducted in um, in the Nuba Mountains uh, was 2010. But mm-hmm. between 2004... And 2010, I'd been conducting interviews uh, in Chad, uh, again in the refugee camps in Jemina. Also, uh, I had conducted scores of interviews in Rwanda um, in 2008, 9, and 10, uh, beginning with my uh, Fulbright in in Rwanda. And the reason I mention these is that the interviews with the people from Darfur and uh, the people from Rwanda were overwhelming in the sense that they were, the stories that people were relating about their experiences were overwhelmingly violent and, uh, I mean, horrifying. And uh, and this is particularly true of the, uh, the people in Rwanda. Um, and I have to say, uh, uh, during those interviews, I had a very difficult time. I would, I would catch myself uh, in the camp, uh, this is in Goz Beta, in a refugee camp, in a UNHCR refugee camp. Hmm. I, would, I would catch myself while I was interviewing, uh, literally biting down on my lip, uh, as I heard something that was absolutely horrific and made me so sad, and I didn't want to emote uh, in front of the people because it was so difficult conducting the interviews and, and so difficult for the people, I mean, relating their stories, that I didn't want to add another layer of complication. And so I would bite down on my lip. I'm sure they wondered, why has this guy gone silent? And I, w- I would compose myself, you know, compose myself that way and then continue. I did exactly the same thing in Rwanda and probably even more times in Rwanda because uh, I had conducted, well, I was conducting interviews Every, almost every single day for six months. And, I mean, the stories there, it, 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 just one after another, where entire families were wiped out mm-hmm. in the most gruesome ways. Uh, and the people, uh, you know, 
conveyed their experiences in in very uh, graphic images. Uh, so by the time I got to the Nuba Mountains, I don't want to say that I was inured to to you know. Uh, Crimes Against Humanity, stories about Crimes Against Humanity and genocide, but they, first of all, they were somewhat different in the sense that mm-hmm. a lot of the people, while they saw uh, violence, um, didn't see a lot of their, uh, with, with certain exceptions, of course, didn't see a lot of their family members killed, tortured, um, you know, cut up in the most savage ways, uh, but they did suffer incredibly from this hunger. Um, and while it had an impact on me, and there were points in time where, again, you know, I would have, I, I would find myself going silent during an interview, um, it didn't happen as often. Um, and, but at the same time, I was doing this all day long, and obviously the people had suffered terribly, uh, but I, uh, you know, I, I think part part of uh, the way I handled it was in in the Nuba Mountains. I had uh, Ramadan, my interpreter, who became a friend, mm-hmm. and we would take time out, uh, you know, to talk about this, that, and the other, which was kind of a decompression time. Um, and I also made some, you know, good friends in the area, uh, locals, and uh, when I would go over to what they refer to um, as their Tuchel's homes, um, you know, we wouldn't talk about uh, about the, uh, the starvation. We would talk about, you know, things that were happening in the community or in their families, and, you know, a lot of times it was just, you know, one-on-one chats, that, you know, like you would have with any neighbors. So I think mm-hmm. that helped me decompress. Uh, but I don't recall myself having as great a difficulty uh, after either during the interviews or after the interviews in the New Mountains, as I did as as I did in Rwanda and uh, in in Chad with the Darfur uh, folks. Well, let's let's go back to the, the historical narrative, and and this stage of the conflict ends with something called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Right. Why were the warring parties willing to cut a deal, and what arrangements did this agreement make for the people of the Nuba Mountains? Yeah. Well, that Comprehensive Peace Agreement, which was made in 2005, which uh, which was agreed on in 2005, was a long time coming, and hmm. uh, the international community, including the United States, the United Nations, and other nations, uh, were involved with the government of Sudan and, of course, the SPLM uh, over a good number of years trying to work out a compromise uh, to the end of this conflict. Uh, Ultimately, I mentioned, you know, roughly 2,000 million people were killed, and I think both sides were ready to come to some sort of uh, an agreement. Now, uh, this is conjecture, but uh, during this very same period, uh, of course, Darfur exploded in 2003. And Darfur is in uh, the southwest uh, uh, of uh, Sudan, adjacent to uh, the state of South Kordofan. And so all of a sudden, uh, the government of Sudan had its hands full 
with uh, the insurrection and in, in uh, Darfur. So I think that that may have, uh, you know, made them maybe more interested in trying to end this civil war because uh, they would have had the entire South uh, up in arms if they didn't do something with uh, uh the South that was engaged in the Civil War. But at the same time, uh, this, this war was bleeding the, uh, bleeding the uh, government of Sudan of uh, uh, its economic wealth. Uh, They're pouring a lot of manpower and uh, a lot of uh, money into fighting the South. At the same time, uh, by 2005, it was uh, becoming rather evident that uh, the International Criminal Court was going after uh, President Omar al-Bashir uh, on charges of genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes, uh, and not just al-Bashir, but others, such as uh, Med Haroun. Um, and uh, so, th- so that was a factor as well. And the international community was very keen on on uh, ending this war, uh, and were they were putting a lot of pressure on uh, Omar al Bashir and the government of Sudan to come around to end it, and uh, there were also uh, at, at, at the same time there were these different deals being made. Uh, for example, the United States purportedly was, um, there was this quid pro quo, if you will, where uh, the government of Sudan uh, allowed the United States uh, to track terrorists through uh, Sudan uh, to try to capture them. And so the United States was relying on Sudan to a certain extent, and there were other members of the uh, UN Security Council that were very close to uh, Sudan. For example, uh, China had a gigantic, and still does, uh, petroleum interest in, in Sudan. That is, they purchased a lot of the petroleum from uh, Sudan, and there was a. They also had a gigantic weapons deal, and Russia had a gigantic weapons deal as well. So there were a lot of parties that were interested. Uh, in in Sudan, obviously some had ulterior motives, um, but they all had an interest in one way or another, and uh, the the people of the South, I mean, they they were more than ready uh, for uh, for peace because you know they experienced all they knew. Uh, there was a generation; all they knew was war. So it's from the pressure of uh, the international community and I think this bleeding of uh, uh, the economy and and manpower, uh, there was enough interest to bring both sides together and uh, to uh, there were enough uh, areas where they could compromise. Uh, For example, Abia, which is in the south, is a main oil-producing region, and uh, so there was the interest, of course, by uh, Sudan to make sure that they still uh, had access to the petroleum, um, and yet the south wanted access to that as well, and so that was a that was a place of compromise. So there was a lot of compromise going back and forth. Uh, ultimately, the CPA. 
what it came down to is that uh, the, the government of uh, Sudan agreed that the South would uh, hold a referendum and uh, the people of the South would vote in this referendum. And uh, basically, they would decide one of two things. Uh, they would either decide to uh, remain a part of Sudan, uh, what uh, this fellow I mentioned before, Grang, referred to as a, um, a new Sudan. And what he mm-hmm. meant by that is a Sudan where the people in the peripheries, and what I mean by that is the 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 individuals who pretty much control Sudan live in what is referred to as the Riverine Valley, which is where uh, Khartoum is located, and it's the confluence of the Blue and White Nile. And everybody outside of the Riverine uh, Valley, uh, and that is the vast majority of the people in Sudan, are referred to as the peripheries. And the peripheries have always been second-class citizens. They've always felt disenfranchised, uh, that, they're, uh, that they're perceived as unsophisticated, not as smart, um, uh, with fewer rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, there was that desire uh, by the South to, you know, to establish this, well, at least by Garang and his people, this new Sudan. It was a vision of a Sudan where everybody, no matter uh, what their religion was, what their politics were, uh, what their educational background was, would have equal rights. And then the other side of the coin was people could vote to uh, remove themselves from Sudan and establish their own nation. Uh, Ultimately, the people voted in favor of establishing a separate nation, and that nation, of course, was uh, constituted as the Republic of South Sudan, and uh, it's the newest nation in the uh, uh, nation of communities, and uh, the uh, the capital is Juba, the largest town in uh, in South Sudan, and. Uh, it controls South, South Sudan controls part of Abia, uh, and there's still that conflict in Abia over the petroleum, which is very interesting because all the petroleum has to go north uh, up to uh, the port uh, in Sudan uh, to be uh, put on ships. And so any oil that South Sudan controls has to go through Sudan. So there's still that area where they've got to compromise. But anyways, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, decision was to go with a new nation. That new nation was established. But what happened is uh, there, there was an agreement that certain areas later would decide what their situation was going to be. And one of those areas was uh, the Nuba Mountains. And the Nuba Mountains people, though, were furious that they were not allowed to vote in a referendum because they wanted to remain with the South. The same is true of the people in the Blue Nile state. Um, And so from the get-go, uh, people in the Nuba Mountains were saying, look, we don't want any part of the government of Sudan. 
we fought with the South against Khartoum. Uh, they're obviously uh, going to want some sort of retribution against us, or they're going to treat us uh, in, uh, in, in ill ways because we fought along the side of the South. And uh, we fear that uh, they may, you know, come down here and uh, repeat what they did in the 1990s. So, uh, and the Blue Nile pretty much felt the same way, but that's the way it went. I mean, once that referendum went through, South Cordovan, the Nuba Mountains, the Blue Nile remained part of the North. And, and so that was really the, uh, a new point of crisis which exploded in the latest war, or it which resulted in the latest war. And the latest war starts three years ago, am I right? June 2011. Right. Um, June 2011, there had been a lot of uh, talk. Uh, In fact, I was in... I was in the Nuba Mountains in, in December 2012, no, no, uh, December 2010 and January 2011. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because almost every single night, rumors be, uh, floated around about what was happening uh, in regard to what was happening in Kadugli. Kadugli is the capital of South Kordofan, which was um, controlled by the government of Sudan. Um, and so rumors were floating around in regard to what was being said uh, by the government officials there uh, in regard to the Nuba Mountains, what was going to happen. Uh, in the Nuba Mountains in Kauda, one night, um, a, uh, a, a form or like a, a circular went up. It was actually posted to a tree in the souk, and uh, it was in Arabic. And it basically was stating that uh, the government of Sudan was planning to attack uh, the Nuba Mountains people if the Nuba Mountains people um, uh, did not uh, cooperate with the government of Sudan and did not uh, um, back off of saying that it was going to rebel if uh, the government of Sudan did not meet certain needs. Uh, two nights in a row, there were gigantic rallies in January uh, 2011 where people were, I mean, thousands of people were there at, at night, and uh, people were yelling that, people on the stage were yelling, Look, we know that there are um, that there are spies in the crowd here from uh, from the north, from Khartoum. We want you to tell Al Bashir that uh, we want we want him to give himself. We want uh, Al Bashir to give himself up to the uh, ICC. We want uh, Haroon to give him up, uh, give himself up to the ICC. We don't want any part of uh, the north. Uh, we're ready to put our uniforms uh, uh, back on, pick up our weapons, and go to war. And if this time we do, we'll go all the way to Khartoum. So there were um, rumors of war <laughs> for a good seven months before the war actually broke out. And at the same time, uh, al-Bashir was threatening the people of the Nuba Mountains. In fact, at one point, he f- flew to Kadugli 
and uh, made the statement that if the Nuba Mountains people uh, basically didn't watch themselves, uh, they were going to suffer exactly the same way they did in the 1990s. And he didn't say any more than that, but the people knew very clearly what he was talking about, that you know they were going to uh, not only be attacked physically, but uh, they were uh, you know going to be denied food. They might start starving again, and um, they weren't sure about the peace camp. The peace camps have uh, never come about, but the attacks and the starvation is going on now. So, yeah, so so that was my next question, actually. You you characterize in your article in Genocide Studies International, actually, in a footnote, you, you, you suggest that you think of this war as a civil war in which the government of Sudan has committed, and I'm going to kind of add an adjective here, significant or extensive human rights violations. Why, why, why do you choose that way of characterizing it? Well, I, it is it is a civil war. Uh, first of all, I, I've talked to uh, one individual after another in the Nuba Mountains, and I, I'm talking about... Uh, uh, Citizens that are not, uh, that have no official position, uh, with either, you know, the government of Sudan or the SPLM or, uh, anybody else. Uh, I've also talked with, uh, soldiers, uh, who are with the SPLM. I've also talked with leaders who are in the SPLM. Mm-hmm. And almost to a person, I've heard over and over again that, uh, that phrase, that refrain that I just mentioned, we're going to take this war all the way to Khartoum. Hmm. And uh, when I questioned people about that, I said, well, I said, basically what you're saying then is that you're, you're going to overthrow al-Bashir. That's, that's your intent. And they said, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. Hmm. And one fellow told me, uh, a rebel uh, soldier, we're going to put in a new government, and the new government is going to establish a government that is for all the people, so that all the people have their basic rights. And I played the devil, uh, devil's advocate at that point, because I said, well... I said, you know, that's a that's a great vision and hope, but look at what's transpiring uh, in uh, South Sudan already. And this is before December uh, two thirteen, before war broke out in South Sudan. Mm-hmm. And what I was referring to is that there were uh, a number of uh, groups that were fighting among themselves, uh, particularly the Dinka Nur in um, South Sudan, and uh, there was a lot of conflict. Uh, in different parts of the country, and uh, there were threats that the uh, or accusations that uh, the main government was guilty of uh, malfeasance and uh, all sorts of uh, corruption. And I said, you know, there are a lot of people in that country that are very disenchanted with the way things are going. They feel uh, disenfranchised under this new government. And uh, he said, well, it's going to be different here. Uh, You know, you can't really argue with people like that, but uh, it was interesting listening to what they had to say. And so it was definitely a civil war. I mean, uh, again, it was basically... Initially, uh, the Nuba Mountains against the uh, government of Sudan, but... Mm -hmm. uh, as I returned um, I, to the Nuba Mountains, I started hearing different stories. And uh, what I mean by that is, is that slowly but surely, 
it wasn't just the people of the Nuba Mountains who were now fighting the government of Sudan, but I was told that uh, there were individuals coming uh, over from Darfur to fight with the, hmm. the, the people of the Nuba Mountains against uh, the government of Sudan. I heard that there were um, actually... They didn't use the term uh, mercenaries who were coming from uh, uh, different countries, Chad, Eritrea, to fight on the behalf of the people of the Nuba Mountains. Um, all in, uh, all with the vision of overthrowing the government and establishing a new government. Now, what I heard most recently, because I just got back from South Sudan um, about a month ago, uh, what I've heard now is that there are uh, members of um, the Jean Jouid, the former Jean Jouid, who mm-hmm. you know were the uh, uh, militia fighting alongside the government of Sudan against the people of Darfur. They've now come over, and they're fighting with the government of Sudan against, I'll say, the people of Nuba and their you know their cohorts. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Jim which is the Justice and Equality Movement, which was one of the initial rebel groups in Darfur uh, to fight against the government of Sudan. They've now come over, and they're fighting on the side of the people of Nuba Mountains, but they're creating all sorts of havoc both in uh, uh, South Kordofan and in um, the New Republic of South Sudan. Basically what they're doing is is they're, they're acting like... Uh, well, out now criminals, really, um, and uh, they're 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 creating havoc in both places. And uh, I actually heard that uh, Adele Aziz, who is the leader of the SPLM North, uh, actually told the the uh, Gem that uh, they had to back off from where they were located in South Cordovan, North South. Of, North South Cordovan, and go to another region. And if they created any more havoc, that they were going to be kicked out of uh, South Cordovan altogether. And and then in uh, the Republic of South Sudan, I mean, they've been killing people left and right. And it seems as if neither the government nor the rebel groups uh, from South Sudan can control them. I mean, they're just out of control. One of the things you've been doing then is to be active in trying to persuade the American government. To um, to somehow, and I'm going to use this word broadly rather than specifically, right? To intervene, to to be more active in the affairs of the Sudan in in this conflict. Um, how, how have you tried to do this, and, and and what kind of steps have you recommended the government take? Right. Um, yeah, I, I'll say. Let me take the the second part of the question first. Uh, mm-hmm. What what I've not asked them to do, meaning the U.S. government, is uh, because I don't think they would. Uh, anyhow, uh, I've not asked them to go to intervene militarily. Uh, now there are individuals who are calling for no flight zones over. Um, uh, South Cordovan, the Nuba Mountains. There are others who would like to see the government go in uh, and uh, basically, you know, take control of the situation. Uh, what I've uh, basically argued for for the past three years is the establishment of a humanitarian corridor. 
and uh, it's very simple. Uh, the, the whole idea is to establish this corridor from the border of uh, South Sudan and uh, the Republic of South Sudan and uh, South Kordovan. Uh, and it's to uh, allow uh, transport of food and medical aid up into the Nuba Mountains uh, so that these people who were without food, uh, without uh, any sort of medical attention, because there's only one real hospital in the whole region of the Nuba Mountains, um, and it's, it's uh, uh, pretty far north, um, these people are pretty much without any basic needs uh, when they're being bombed. And uh, I thought, well, all right, if they could establish that and let the government of Sudan know that, look, we're going to bring this food up, uh, government of Sudan uh, officials can uh, witness the uh, delivery of this food so that it's not getting into the hands of the rebels, it's getting to the people. Uh, you know, which I realize might be naive because once the people have it, certainly the rebels can get a hold of it. Um, but, you know, that was it. That was it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've argued this uh, along with a good number of genocide scholars who have uh, signed on to letters that I've crafted either myself or I've crafted with one or two or three other genocide scholars. Uh, and we have sent these letters to um, uh, uh, everyone from President Obama to uh, Hillary Clinton when she was U.S. Secretary of State, uh, to Susan Rice when she was the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., uh, to Samantha Power when she was heading up the Atrocities Prevention Board, um, and uh, to the special uh, U.S. envoy to Sudan. Uh, and basically what we argued is, you know, this, this situation, meaning the Nuba Mountains, has been going on since June 2011. Uh, uh, Al-Bashir has already threatened to do what uh, Sudan had done to the people in the 1990s, and so we talk about the genocide by attrition and the, and the starvation. Uh, we note that people already have been flooding, uh, and this has been going on for the past uh, three years, flooding over the border into South Sudan, uh, and that different organizations from uh, Samaritan's Purse, from Oxfam, from Doctors Without Borders, have uh, all attested to the fact that a lot of these people who are coming across the border are, are suffering from uh, malnutrition to severe malnutrition to almost, you know, well, there's ample evidence that people have died of starvation on the way down, uh, uh, down through the Nuba Mountains on their way to uh, South Sudan, and that uh, these people need help, and they need help as soon as possible because uh, it's causing all sorts of conflict, uh, you know, along the border of South Sudan. Uh, it's causing conflict with the people in the Republic of South Sudan, uh, who resent these people being on their land. Um, 
and uh, there are a lot of people still up in the mountains who are so far removed from towns that they don't have access to food. Uh, I also we also talked about the fact that people are coming into um, the one hospital. Uh, it's Mother of Mercy Hospital in a place called Goodell, who uh, the doctor there has attested to the fact that um, uh, people have come in and there's evidence that they're suffering from malnutrition and severe malnutrition as well. Uh, so we've made various arguments in various ways uh, over the years. Uh, we've sent uh, numerous letters to the same people. Uh, to the Atrocities Prevention Board, which ostensibly was to address uh, situations just like this one in the Nuba Mountains. I mean, uh, President Obama established that back in, uh, what was it? Uh, it I'm trying to think it was April 2012, I believe. Uh, he announced it. Uh, the establishment of the Atrocities Prevention Board at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in April uh, and basically stated that the focus of this uh, Atrocities Prevention Board was going to be uh, crimes against humanity and genocide. The whole idea was prevention, uh, to try to prevent these acts. And what we stated is, look, you know, while this is not a case of genocide, though some people, I should say, this is an aside, there are certain scholars uh, and activists who have already called it genocide. I don't. I say that it's a case of crimes against uh, humanity and war crimes. Uh, but we we stated in these letters that you know we have crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the time to prevent genocide is before genocide is going to um, be perpetrated. So you have all of these crimes against humanity being perpetrated. Now is the time to get in there and uh, either you know diplomatically uh, or through sanctions, and we we've discussed this as well in these letters. Um, you know, put pressure on on uh, the Sudanese government to uh, halt the daily bombings and uh, to uh, halt the attacks on the villages and the farms and the schools and the churches and the mosques, uh, and allow the people to come back to their villages. Um, the only person who has really been open to discussing this uh, was the uh, U.S. Uh, special uh, envoy uh, to Sudan, and he actually uh, got on the phone with us and, and talked to us and responded to our letters. Uh, none of the other parties that received letters from us, and a lot of these letters were sent, uh, registered mail so that we knew that these people had to, somebody had to sign for them on the other end. None of them even acknowledged the letter, let alone respond to the uh, to our concerns. So, uh, so Princeton Lyman, though, uh, who was the U.S. envoy, uh, he ended up stepping down. Um, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but I can say that when we spoke with him on the phone. Um, he was making both off-the-record comments, uh, but his voice and uh, the tone and tenor of what he was saying uh, seemed to be 
uh, one of frustration with the slowness of what was going on and, you know, the lack of progress, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but nobody else has responded. Hmm. Well, there is a whole other interview in there about this question of how to intervene in gen- to prevent genocide and when and what are the appropriate tactics to use. Uh, unfortunately, our time is drawing short now. Maybe sometime later you'll agree to come back on the show and talk about that. Sure. But I would just like to conclude today with a couple brief questions. And, and the first is simple. For people interested in, in learning more about the region, what would you recommend to them? Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, there's uh, there's a very interesting group. Uh, it's a uh, a local group working in the Nuba Mountains. It was established by an American. Uh, it's called Eyes and Ears of the Nuba. You can go online, Google Eyes and Ears of the Nuba, and basically. Uh, this group is serving as a group of uh, civilian uh, journalists, or as they refer to themselves, citizen journalists. And every time there's an attack, these fellows uh, go out on motorbikes or any way they can to these regions, and uh, while, while these attacks are underway, they videotape the attacks, and then they write up a report on the attacks. And these are all posted uh, on a regular basis on, on this uh, website. So that's one way to stay abreast of what's going on. Uh, they, they're doing a great job. Uh, so that's one. Uh, two, uh, there, there are various organizations that are, that are working on this. Uh, there are organizations actually, uh, in the United States, uh, that are comprised of Nuba Mountains, uh, citizens who, many of them are young people who have, uh, come to the United States to study. Uh, and so if they Google, uh, Nuba Mountains plus United States, they'll find that there are Nuba Mountain organizations in, for example, Virginia. Uh, there's another one in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, there's another one down in Louisiana, uh, and one in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and what they do is they do have websites, and uh, they try to the best of their ability uh, to upload key documents and uh, keep people apprised of what's happening over there. Um, I have a new book coming out uh, mm-hmm. on the Nuba Mountains, and it it addresses both the crisis in the 1990s as well as the crisis today. And uh, this one is a... Uh, uh, a book of uh, original essays by scholars who have uh, studied this issue, including scholars in Sudan um, and and uh, act- some activists as well who have spent many, many years. I mean, some of them have spent 20 years in the Sudan and really know the history and the politics inside and out. That's being published by Rutledge. Um, and it's coming out, I believe, in December. It's crisis, crises in Sudan. Uh, and, uh, I mean, those are probably the best ways. There's one other fellow who's doing really impressive work as well. I don't know the name of his website, but, uh, all they have to do is look up his first name. His name is Tomo, T-O-M-O, and then put plus Nuba Mountains. He's a, a journalist from uh, Europe, uh, 
And uh, I've met Tomo a number of times. He's an amazing character, and he's probably spent um, as much time, if not more time, than most outsiders in the Nuba Mountains. And I'm talking about the, over the past 10, and 15, uh, 10 to 15 years. And he travels everywhere in the hardest ways. I mean, from foot to going up the Nile in these motorboats, and he's constantly covering what's happening and posting it, including videos. In fact, he he posted an incredible video uh, several months ago of a uh, village being attacked by MiG jets, and the village basically was totally destroyed and ended up a smoking, smoldering ruins, just like you see if you go on Google Earth and look at, uh, at, the, at Darfur, where they're just big, round, black circles. Well, I want to say thank you so much for the interview. It's been wonderfully interesting and, um, and enlightening. Uh, I know you're headed back to the region sometime in the future, and I want to wish you safe travels, and hopefully sometime down the road you'll be willing to come on the program again. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Samuel Totten about his book, Genocide by Attrition, The Nuba Mountains of Sudan. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you come back next time for our special episode of the podcast. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Rwanda genocide. To recognize this, the next show will feature a panel discussion around the question, what do we now know about the Rwanda genocide 20 years after? Scott Strauss, Lars Waldorf, and Leanne Fuji will all join me to help discuss this question. I hope you join us for that special podcast. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.